um, intended on bringing the printouts from previous weeks tonight, but I failed to do that, so I apologize. Raven asked for them earlier, but um, I didn't do it. So I'll bring them next week, uh, or, yeah, I'll be here next week. Uh, Lord willing, I will remember, and depending how far we get tonight, may have some more for you as well. Um, Tonight we are going to uh, finish up the omnipotence of God, and uh, then we will um, deal with the holiness of God, um, which shouldn't take us more than about five minutes. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, uh, just as a reminder, we are still... In uh, paragraph 1 of chapter 2, we are dealing with that string of attributes um, beginning with uh, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, and most absolute. Um, So we are currently dealing with almighty, and if you recall last week we... Uh, I mentioned that several of these attributes in this list we've already dealt with in other portions of this paragraph, so we're skipping over a few of them. i just refer you back to um, previous uh, lessons. So uh, tonight we, uh, we pick up where we left off last week on the omnipotence of God. And if you recall, uh, we mentioned um, that there are, um, there are four things specifically uh, within the omnipotence of God, the, the sovereignty or the power of God, um, that we say God cannot do. Um, and maybe striking to us at first, but as we consider what those things are, we recognize the importance of highlighting them. Um, four things that God cannot do. And if you recall, I mentioned that those were uh, first, um, that which is logically contradictory. God cannot do anything that is logically contradictory. Uh, Secondly, God cannot do any actions that would be considered immoral according to his perfect law. God will not go against uh, the very law um, that he commands uh, man to uphold in perfection. Uh, God will not do any actions denying his own nature as God. Remember, we dealt with that in the um, doctrine of uh, divine simplicity. Um, and lastly, in that, um, that there will be no alteration of God's eternal plan. If God is immutable, unchangeable, um, then his plan will not alternate. So God's not going to change his mind. He can't. He's immutable. Um, so when we talk about... Um, the omnipotence of God, it's very important that we keep that in mind, that there are things that God cannot do because for him to do them would deny his divinity, it would deny his attributes, and God would no longer be God. Um, And that is uh, refreshing in uh, every way uh, because all the more we're able to know God as God as opposed to wondering... um, how it's going to be tomorrow as compared to today. Um, So let's keep those things in mind as we continue on. 
um, four ways that God, uh, God is presented as omnipotent in the scriptures. And this is one of God's attributes. Not all of them are this way, but this is one of them that um, we could spend the entire night uh, reading various uh, verses of scripture to get uh, a sense of what the Bible is saying about God's omnipotence and not even cover all of them because there's so much that points to it in the scriptures. But I'll give you a few examples. Uh, The first is that God is presented affirmatively. In other words, God is all-sufficient and powerful. The affirmative affirmation of God's omnipotence. He is sufficient and powerful. So let's look at a few examples. First, God's sufficiency. God as Shaddai. Genesis 35, 11. And if I... Say the verses, and you would like to read them, please, as soon as you get there, read that. Uh, someone else can look up Psalm 89, 13. Genesis 35, 11. Okay. I am, I am God Almighty. That's what we're looking for, this beginning part. Um, God himself... Um, proclaiming his uh, his might that god is almighty that's what from the confession the word that is used that's what we're dealing with so god affirms that in his own nature psalm 89:13 okay uh, so again uh, the mighty uh, the power of god uh, fits uh, into the affirmative um, the the affirmative uh, affirmation of god's omnipotence um, Deuteronomy ten seventeen. Someone has that. Okay, thank you. So that really uh, sums a lot of it up for us, doesn't it? Uh, say those uh, that list of attributes he gives again. Excellent. Great. So he uh, there there is no uh, there is no question there. Um, of the divinity of God and presenting himself as um, greater than all, um, almighty, powerful um, in every way. So this is the affirmative uh, presentation in the scriptures of God's omnipotence. There are many, many examples. These are only a few. Uh, Secondly, the scripture presents God's omnipotence effectively. In other words, God can do all things, the effects of God's omnipotence. Um, all the works of the divine power and supernatural miracles. They all happen within the power of God. So a few examples, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9. Great. So um, pointing to the reality of God's um, ability and his power, but also not only ability, but a supernatural ability, right? So obviously um, there is some, uh, there's an instance here of something we're going to talk about in a little while, something God can do but doesn't. Um, but nevertheless, it's uh, pointing to the reality uh, that God has the ability. Um, he effectively can do this, um, pointing to his supernatural um, power. Uh, Mark fourteen thirty six. Okay, thank you. So the statement here, Jesus praying to the Father, all things are possible for you. So again, the effective um, 
the effective affirmation of God's omnipotence. So other references, we won't look at them just now, but Luke 18.27 and Ephesians 3.20 as well. Um, Thirdly, God's omnipotence is presented negatively. And that being this, nothing is too difficult or impossible for God. Nothing is too difficult or impossible for God. So a few examples, Genesis 18.14. Okay, so we see it here in the form, uh, the negative form, we see it in a um, rhetorical question. Is, an, is anything too hard for the Lord? Obvious answer being no. Um, let's look at um, Luke one thirty-seven. A little sword drill exercise tonight. Yes. Okay. Good. So that in itself uh, sort of defines what we're uh, looking at in that reality. Nothing is impossible with God. Um, other uh, places you can look: Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen, and verse twenty-seven, and Matthew nineteen twenty-six. Uh, fourthly, uh, God's omnipotence is presented in the scriptures symbolically. These are the, this is the anthro, uh, anthropomorphic language of the Bible. God having a strong right hand, God having an outstretched arm, presenting God's uh, omnipotence. So 1 Chronicles 29.12. Okay. In your hand are power and might to give strength to all. So we see the symbolic language at use here. Obviously, we recall God does not have a body. He's non-corporeal. Um, but he uh, is given uh, the symbolic um, body, body parts to explain his power, his omnipotence. Um, let's look at one more. Uh, Ephesians 1.19. Okay. His mighty power, his great might. Uh, again, kind of the picture drawn here is uh, the, the powerful force of something uh, big and mighty. Uh, you think of a large... Um, army or a large person or you can compare uh, what everyone thought Goliath was going to do to David. It's this sort of um, comparison of of might here, the immeasurable greatness and power. I thought thought we were all good enough Calvinists to have Ephesians 1 memorized. I thought someone was just going to bust that one out real quick. (laughs) Um, So these four ways we have God's omnipotence presented to us uh, in the scriptures, affirmatively or positively, effectively, negatively, and symbolically. Um, As I said before, the biblical evidence for the omnipotence of God is nearly overwhelming. Um, Truly, I I would go as far as to say um, that any book even that's been written Uh, on the omnipotence of God has missed a few uh, examples in the scriptures uh, because there are so many um, and it is evident in so many places throughout the Bible. And really, it must be logically true if the other attributes and works of God described in the scriptures are true as well. Um, Nevertheless, we have to understand that to say that God is omnipotent is not an affirmation, as we already talked about, that God can literally do anything 
since God can only perform possible acts, which in his supernatural state includes miracles. But he cannot do those things that are impossible. So, you know, I use that language and say, well, all we just read, all things with God are possible. So what do we mean by things that are impossible? For example, can God make a rock so big that he cannot move or lift it? What's that? Yeah. The answer has not changed. Yes. <laughs> the answer is no. Um, God cannot do that which is impossible. It is impossible for um, uh, for an omnipotent, all-powerful God to make something that he was unable to move or lift or whatever. That's not possible. Um, so the skeptic would say, well, then God can't do all things. Well, no, that's not, that's a, that's a foolish answer. That is not a, um, that doesn't follow the laws of logic. Um, it goes against his very nature and God will not do anything against his nature or else he ceases to be God. So a God as infinite can will an infinite number of things. But again, they all fit within his own nature. He does as he chooses. He's not bound by any order of things other than that which he has created himself. He's able to do, this is important, we'll talk about this in just a minute, he's able to do more than he actually affects. So he's able to do, able, capable, that's a very important distinction, of doing far more than actually occurs. Um, he's no way limited, he's no way impeded by creation. Um, nevertheless, he cannot will things contrary to his nature. He cannot will things that are self-contradictory. Um, God, as all-powerful, abides and persists in the best things rather than fall into impotence by doing lesser or unworthy acts. So, I mentioned God actually affecting things versus God's ability to affect things. Theologically, in the English, this is a statement of God's absolute versus God's actual power. I shouldn't say verses that seems to sound like they're opposed to each other. Maybe and. His absolute power and his actual power. Um, so here's the difference between the two. When we speak of the absolute power of God, that refers to that which God can do, but is beyond what he actually does or will do. For example, God had the power to remove the thorn in the flesh from Paul, but we clearly see in the scriptures that he did not do that. Um, God had the power to prevent the crucifixion of Christ. But he did not do that. So when we speak of these things, we're talking about the absolute power of God. So God possesses the absolute power to do certain things. But having ability does not necessitate actuality. His ability to do something doesn't mean he has to do it, just like you and I, right? Um, the absolute power of God cannot be understood without qualification, though, uh, as with most things. Um, or else we could easily fall into what was a late uh, medieval heresy um, of volunteerism. It presented God as able to do that which was in opposition to his nature. 
which was a denial of his simplicity. Um, God's omnipotence is conditioned by God's nature. So, again, his power rests in who God is. It all plays out through the attributes of who he is. Um, John Calvin rejected very strongly, as if he rejected anything, it was never lightly or weakly, it was always very strongly, so I don't really, that's kind of redundant. Um, This medieval notion that uh, God could act in opposition to his nature, he called the notion profane. He said, we fancy no lawless God who is a law unto himself. Uh, Further, uh, in his sermons on Job, Calvin said, And undoubtedly, whereas the doctors of the Sobene say that God hath an absolute or lawless power, it is a devilish blasphemy forged in hell, for it ought not once to enter into a faithful man's head. So, This idea, for example, that God could make a rock so large that he could not move or lift it, um, this is the sort of thing that Calvin is saying. That's foolishness. It's a heretical statement even because it's to say that God would work against his own being, his own nature. And such a lie is, in Calvin's words, forged in hell. Um, And I think uh, he stated it well. So it's very important as we talk about the absolute power of God, that which he can do but he doesn't necessarily do, um, of course, still does not include these things which would be in opposition to him. Um, So Calvin, he wouldn't have rejected the idea to say that God could do that which he doesn't, but anything that would make God a rival unto himself. So the absolute power of God must be understood to mean God's possession of the power to actualize or bring about that which is consistent with his nature. So the actual power of God then, maybe the name itself identifies what it is, is that which God does cause. Or it's the power uh, which he does those things which he does to cause all things to be as he has freely, freely willed them to be. In other words, all that is done, all that exists is willed by God and is done and exists by his greater power. It's the power that God exercises in uh, actualizing, bringing about the world that he has willed to exist. So when referring to the omnipotence of God, this is generally the power that is being referred to, the actual power of God. When we talk about God's omnipotence, 99% of the time, or when you hear of God's sovereignty or whatever, most people are speaking of this, that God has willed something and all things that exist have been willed by God. Um, They are in uh, his decree and therefore they happen. Uh, This is the actual power of God. So before I push on to application of omnipotence, um, any thoughts or questions or clarifications, comments, anything on any of this? God not knowing. Well, nothing I've seen by open theists where that's been presented, but the, the response is easy. 
um, simply because God talks about knowing the future. The Bible very clearly speaks of God knowing the future um, versus anything that would suggest God working against his own nature. So um, I think it just comes down to a textual issue. But I've not, I've not seen anything of that sort from open theists. I'm, I wouldn't put it past them, though. They're, uh, they're already on very shaky, uh, weak very there's some there are some there's some false teachings uh those that are heretical and those that aren't you look at and you say creative i can see where maybe you got there but there's others like open theism where you say that is just it's just odd you have to like rip out entire sections of the bible to even get to that conclusion so yeah i've not i've not seen anything there any other thoughts questions All right, so let's apply this doctrine. One of the um, one of the ditches I think that Reformed people fall into a lot is talking about God's omnipotence, His sovereignty, without ever thinking through the implications of His sovereignty in a way that is um, meaningful beyond just knowing some doctrine. Um, I think it's very important that this is something we um, we deal with in terms of. Uh, real application in our Christian lives. So there's three things I want to look at. The first is God's omnipotence gives us another reason to praise God. Um, A God of complete power who is able to do all things in accordance with his own determined plan and desire without the influence of any factor outside his own being, is truly worthy of worship. The power of Almighty God, joined with his infinite wisdom, with his authority, it gives demand to praise and adoration. The very fact that God has willed it to be, that he has revealed himself in creation itself, and that we see people all over the world worshiping creation because they recognize beyond it is a creator, um, in itself points to this reality that innately mankind understands um, because of God's power and ability um, that he is worthy of worship. Uh, Arthur Pink wrote, Well, may the enlightened soul adore such a God. The wondrous and infinite perfections of such a being call for fervent worship. If men of might and renown claim the admiration of the world, how much more should the power of the Almighty fill us with wonderment and homage? Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Um, It's a quote from Exodus 15, 11. Uh, a good a good quote here from Stephen Charnock in The Attributes and Existence of God. He writes, Wisdom and power are the grounds of the respect we give to men. They, being both infinite in God, are the foundation of a solemn honor to be returned to him by his creatures. If a man make a curious engine, we honor him for his skill. If another vanquish a vigorous enemy... We admire him for his strength. And shall not the efficacy of God's power in creation, government, redemption, inflame us with the sense of the honor of his name and perfections? 
We admire those princes that have vast empires, numerous armies, and have a power to conquer their enemies and preserve their own people in peace. How much more ground have we to pay a mighty reverence to God, who without trouble and weariness made and manages this vast empire of the world by a work and beck? What sensible thoughts have we of the noise of thunder, the power of the sun, the storms of the sea, these things that have no understanding, have such a reverence and adoration, doth this mighty power, joined with an infinite wisdom in God, demand at our hands. Wonderful. Um, A wonderful statement of how prone mankind is to um, adore the works and the power, the so-called power of man, um, and yet fails to look beyond to uh, the creator rather than the creature. Um, But all of these things, um, the greatest of world powers, to multiply them to the nth degree and know that God um, is still greater yet, calls us to worship. Uh, Second application of God's omnipotence is a warning to the rebellious. Divine omnipotence is a dire warning to anyone who thinks that they can resist the judgment of God. Uh, The power and might of God is incalculably uh, greater and infinitely impossible to overcome. It's greater than anything that could be imagined. Uh, Again, Arthur Pink, he writes, To treat with impudence one who can crush us more easily than we can a moth is suicidal policy. To openly defy him who is clothed with omnipotence, who can rend us to pieces or cast us into hell any moment he pleases, is the very height of insanity. Love that quote. Um, And yet that's uh, the very thing that we see day by day. Um, The prophet Nahum, everyone's a a Nahum scholar, um, knew something of God's omnipotence when he proclaimed his attributes and he delivered when he delivers a warning to the people. Nahum chapter 1 verses 2 through 5 says this, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Charles Spurgeon said, Yes, the power of God, when seen in the tempest, on sea or on land, in the earthquake or in the hurricane, is instinctively a proof that he will not acquit the wicked. I know not how to explain the feeling, but it is nevertheless the truth. Majestic displays of omnipotence have an effect upon the mind of convincing even the hardest that God who is so powerful will not at all acquit the wicked. I think one of the greatest examples of what Spurgeon is saying is... um, that probably every single one of us in our homeowner's insurance policy has a little statement that talks about the acts of God, right? Is that right? (laughs) What are they referring to? These things that um, are 
tornadoes, hurricanes, these sorts of things, um, how else are they going to describe them? I guess it might say natural disasters, but it's um, curious to me that they refer to them as acts of God. Um, are those, that's something they say they're not responsible for most of the time. Okay, those are all, okay. So man innately knows, as Spurgeon's pointing out, we don't see these things and say, wow, let's think about all of the ways that um, the gases in the sky and the, the wind and the, uh, the wind patterns and the temperature and all. We're not putting all of these pieces together as we're staring at this massive, awe-inspiring, I think we, some of us talked about this Sunday night, um, these things that we see that just captivate us and almost uh, they leave us speechless and take our breath away in nature. And we're not stopping to think of what uh, we believe the scientific reality behind it all to be, but rather we are brought to a place of awe. We're inspired to reverence and worship in the midst of all of it because it is absolutely incredible. Has anyone been up close to a tornado before? It's, um, it's quite remarkable. It's something unlike anything else that maybe you have ever seen. Um, you can, you know, obviously we see pictures of these sorts of things. I imagine um, astronauts in space catch a bit of uh, what we're talking about. But all of this is a warning to the rebellious. In God's power to... Um, to make this happen. And yet you live in utter disdain for him. You're constantly rebelling against him, blaspheming him. Imagine uh, the power of his wrath as it falls down in judgment upon you. Um, this is uh, what a bit of what uh, these uh, theologians are speaking of. It's the very thing that Nahum was referring to. Um, the God who does all of this, he says the mountains even quake before him. And they don't have a soul. <laughs> Imagine what God will bring against his enemies. Thirdly, the omnipotence of God is a comfort to those who are saved. God's omnipotence is a comfort to his elect in times of persecution and oppression. Psalm 27.1 The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? God's omnipotence is a comfort to people in times of temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is a comfort to his people in prayer. He's fully able to do all that he has asked, and uh, he will do whatever is best for his people, for our good. Ephesians three twenty and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. He is worthy of implicit confidence. Nothing is too hard for God. If he were 
Um, if his might were limited, if his strength were limited, we would have reason for despair. But the simple reality is it is not. Um, Seeing that God is fully omnipotent, no prayer that we might pray is too difficult for him to answer. Uh, No need is too great for him to supply. No passion is too strong for him to subdue. No temptation is too powerful for him to deliver. And no misery is too deep for him to relieve. This is our greatest hope in God, that everything that we endure in this life can be um, set right according to God's perfect and glorious plan because he is able and perhaps even more comforting is that he is willing. We see that very clearly in the scriptures and, of course, in the reality that Paul presents to us, that God is working all things together for our good. So um, we will deal more with the sovereignty of God uh, throughout the confession, but um, just as an attribute itself, that's where I'm going to cut off with that one. So any uh, thoughts or questions on any of this that we've covered or perhaps any other ways uh, of application that you've thought of? All right. Well, the next attribute that the confession deals with um, is that God is in every way infinite. And I addressed that um, earlier. Um, I had a section entitled The Infinity of God. So that should be in your notes if you'd like to look at that again. Um, So we'll move on to most holy. Um. I would, uh, in this, recommend a book that I think every Christian should read. Um, It's called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Um, It's a fantastic book, and um, he does a great job of, in this, um, uh, you catch yourself many times just kind of sitting and uh, wonder that God ever, in all of his holiness, ever thought to um, create or save people like us. it really has a way of bringing that out in his book, and it's very, um, very good. So I recommend that. Um, throughout the Old Testament, we see many times that God is referred to as the Holy One or the Holy One of Israel. Um, Isaiah calls God the one whose name is holy in Isaiah fifty-seven, fifteen. Remember when, uh, when Moses encounters God in the burning bush, he was called to remove his shoes because the very fact that God in some form was, uh, was visibly present to Moses uh, made the ground he was about to stand on holy. Um, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, describes his encounter with the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Um, As Isaiah looks to the throne, immediately the first thing he describes is these these seraphim who are these creatures created by God. They're above the throne and it says they're calling back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And this this threefold repetition... um, you know, obviously, there's some some reference there to uh, God in in the Godhead as uh, um, the threefold nature of the Godhead and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, but also biblically, the threefold uh, proclamation is a um, 
is a reference to perfection, to completeness. Um, so holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We see in Isaiah 6, uh, 1 through 3. Most simply stated, God's holiness is his separation from sin and his devotion to seeking his own honor. God is holy because, if you recall we talked about this in his simplicity, God is holy because all moral excellency in its perfection is found in him. And nothing exists within God that taints or can taint his perfection. So everything that is good and perfect is found in its fullness in God. And nothing within God or outside of God can taint that perfection. Additionally, God's holiness is contrary to the post-fall nature of man who is wicked and sinful. And so as we draw that distinction, we see all the more the great holiness of God. He is absolute purity, unsullied, even by the shadow of sin. The Apostle John wrote, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. First John 1 John 1.5 So... Uh, we see statements in the Bible like that of Habakkuk one thirteen. God is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong because of his holiness. Um, God is a pure and unmixed delight. He's free from all blemish in his essence, in his nature, as well as his operations in what he is doing. The lengthy quote here, I think, though, is worthy of our time and effort to think through. The nature of God cannot be uh, cannot rationally be conceived without God's holiness. Though the power of God be the first rational conclusion drawn from the sight of his works, wisdom the next, from the order and connection of his works, purity must result from the beauty of his works. That God cannot be deformed by evil, who hath made everything so beautiful in its time. The notion of a God cannot be entertained without separating from him whatsoever is impure and bespotting, both in his essence and actions. Though we conceive him infinite in majesty, infinite in essence, eternal in duration, mighty in power, wise and immutable in his counsels, merciful in his proceedings with men, and whatsoever other perfections may dignify so sovereign a being, yet if we conceive him destitute of the excellent perfection and imagine him possessed with the least contagion of evil, we make him to be an infinite monster." and solely all those perfections we ascribed to him before, we rather own him a devil than a god. It is a contradiction to be God and to be darkness, or to have one mote of darkness unmixed with his light. It is a less injury to him to deny his being than to deny the purity of it. The one makes him no god, the other a deformed, unlovely, and a detestable god. It is a less wrong to God to discard any acknowledgement of his being and to count him nothing than to believe him to exist, but imagine a base and unholy deity. That caused me to think a lot. God thinks it less offensive, I guess we could say, 
to consider him to not exist at all than to consider him to exist as a moral monster of impurity, of evil, of a detestable nature. Um, why? Because he is holy. Because he is perfect in every way. Because he is uh, the, the total uh, perfect essence of all things that are good and perfect and right. Um, so I, I completely agree with that statement. I think, um, again, great cause for us to uh, just marvel at his holiness. Uh, the holiness of God contains both a relational quality and a moral quality. Uh, the relational quality of God's holiness is his separation, his otherness, his transcendence. Uh, the moral quality addresses what God is separated from, namely sin and evil. Uh, because God is the perfection of all moral qualities, he cannot tolerate sin, and indeed it is right to say that God hates all sin. Proverbs 3.32, for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 15.26, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. It's a hatred of God's. Uh, King David, reflecting on the perfection of God and his law in Psalm 119, verse 104. Uh, he thought of his his uh, thought of the perfection of God, thought of the law of God, and he said, "Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way." In other words, in identifying what God hates, namely every false way, every sin, every evil, vile thing, he also expresses hatred for the same. If God hates it, I too hate it. Is sort of the statement that David's making. So God's holiness and his hatred for sin are at the heart of the necessity for the punishment of sin. In fact, so detestable is sin to God that it, it only took one for the entirety of mankind to fall into a state of total depravity and rebellion. God has often forgiven sinners, but he never forgives sin. And the sinner is only forgiven on the grounds of another having born the punishment. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Hebrews 9.22. Um, and you see this several times throughout the Bible, this issue of one sin prevents a whole uh, great number of things because God takes sin so seriously. For one sin in all the posterity of Canaan, uh, a, a son of Ham fell under a curse which remains over them um, to this day. Uh, for one sin, Moses was excluded from Canaan. Um, Elisha's servant was smitten with leprosy. Ananias and Sapphira were cut out of the land of the living. So we could go on and, and point to these things in Scripture where um, individual instances of sin, even ones that we look at and say, what's the big deal? Think of Nadab and Abihu. As they go in to offer, they, if by all instances it seems, they're going in to offer worship unto the Lord, um, but they just decided, hey, we don't want to go through uh, the ritual that God's prescribed, uh, but we still want to worship. And I, I, I believe in that instance, their hearts were genuinely desirous of true worship of God. And yet they offered what God called strange fire. It wasn't as he prescribed. 
And because of his holiness and because of his demand for absolute perfection, particularly in the temple of worship by his priests, um, they were struck dead. And when, his father, when their father Aaron sought to mourn his loss, he was told in the words of Felicia talking to our daughter, dry it up. <laughs> uh, you, can, you can mourn later. Uh, we have duties of the temple to attend to. We have the work of God to do. Um, so God takes his holiness very seriously. He leaves no sin unpunished lest his holiness be corrupted. And, you know, even, even as the, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies every year, uh, what, what, had, what did he have to go through to get there and what went on with the other priests as he was there? Does anyone know some of what's going on there? Yeah. Yeah, they tied a rope and a belt to him. What was the purpose of that? Sure. If, if the high priest, this is a stressful job, if the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies to perform his duties, and the Holy of Holies is, um, is the place where um, God was dwelling in their midst, if he was to go back there and to perform his duties in a sinful manner or whatever, or for any other reason that he died there, um, no one else was authorized to go back there. They couldn't be there. God appointed one person to do it, and no one else was allowed there lest they too die. So they had a rope to drag him out. Um, so, again, this all points to God's holiness. That's what all of uh, all of the... Um, the you, you look at, you read things in uh, specifically places like Exodus, in the building of the tabernacle, and the, the minute details that go into that. And what color or what type of uh, and what size the ringlets were to be that held it to the posts that were to be made of a certain wood, and they all had to be a certain length. And we look at all this and say, what's the big deal? Why so meticulous? It all points back to the perfection and the holiness of God the necessity of these things to be perfect because God is perfect. And this was to be a place where the perfect God and all of his holiness and splendor was to dwell in the midst of his people. And so now, of course, God dwells in the midst of his people through um, the Holy Spirit and uh, in Christ, um, having lived and walked as um, in his human nature. But nevertheless, there are many, many things in the Bible that point to this and um, we'll, we'll end there uh, tonight as far as my commentary is concerned but uh, next week we are going to deal uh, along with this in other attributes that are ascribed to God such as goodness, truth, justice, these sorts of things that really all fall under the holiness of God so I'll end there any, uh, any comments or questions uh, with anything tonight <laughs> I, I would, I don't know. I, so much ritual to even the clothes and everything else had to be placed. I would assume so. Yeah, that your donkey was just tied up with, right? Sure. Sure. You see that several times. You think of uh, Noah building the ark. Well, God gave very specific direction as to what that was to be like. Um you know, when you read through Leviticus, you get a very profound sense of God's holiness uh, in the holiness codes. 
Now, of course, these are the things that um, secular people want to point to and uh, accuse us of taking out of context and this and that because they don't understand how we understand God's law and how we have determined what God does require of us versus what he did require of us. But nevertheless, you know, there again, to us, it's just a mountain of details. Um, you know, don't, uh, don't do this, don't eat that, don't touch this, don't touch that, all of these things. Why? All, all of it had purpose. It wasn't God trying to be a stickler and tell them, um, you know, I hope you have miserable lives on earth. Um, he, was, he was pointing to the reality that he is holy. And those things which are holy do not mix with those things that are profane. And so, you know, depending, uh, eventually we see God saying, well, I created all things, and so in their proper context and with appropriate, moderate use, um, all things um, be called um, holy, these things that he called profane previously. So uh, nevertheless, again, I, I think it's fair to say that um, much of the Bible, um, one of the primary focuses of the Bible is to point to the holiness of God. Um, I think that's a fair assessment. Any other thoughts or questions? Okay. Well, let's uh, pray and we'll be dismissed.